If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to look at the whole chapter in just a moment. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the inside cover of your bulletin, the scripture's printed there. You can also grab one of the pew Bibles. The red ones are hymnals, the black ones are pew Bibles, and I believe it's page 976. A couple brief notes for you. Uh, more on why we're preaching Ephesians in, uh, in a little bit after we read the passage. Also, uh, next week, we've got a guest preacher, uh, Jeff Kreisel of uh, Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF, over at the Air Force Academy. He's going to be preaching to us. Parents, cadets, sorry we couldn't have him here this week for Parents Weekend. We, uh, we didn't quite get it, but he'll be here next week. Proud to support him, say more about that next week. Ephesians chapter 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ascends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessings now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Our loving heavenly father, we come before you. We need your light so that we might see light. We need you to enlighten 
our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold these wondrous truths that you've laid forth for us. Father, help us to know this great hope to which we've been called. We ask it all in Jesus' great name. Amen. This may be a bad idea, but I've got a good reason. The possibly bad idea. I'm going to preach one sermon and only one for now on Ephesians chapter 1, a chapter that is packed with every spiritual blessing. Why? What's my good reason? Hold on. First, something more important. Why did Paul write this letter? Scholars actually are not sure. They debate on it. They have different reasons. Scholars don't know, but we do know this. Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20, it tells us that Paul is in prison, as he writes. But his biggest prayer is not to get out of prison. It's to proclaim the gospel clearly and boldly, which he does for six chapters. Paul, you might say, is an earthly problem. Prison is, at the very least, that. But he'd rather tell other people about spiritual blessings. We all have problems in this life. We'll talk about those specifics as we get to Ephesians 4, at, at which point in a few weeks we will slow down. But first, we need to remember who we are. Before we think about those problems, we need to remember who we are, what our identity is in Christ, the blessings that we have in Christ, the experience of knowing Christ more closely, more clearly, more deeply. Again, once we get to Ephesians 4, we'll see how to speak to one another, how to live Christ-like lives amidst other imperfect Christians. But first, we need to know Christ more. The identity that he gives, the blessings that he gives, the clarity, the knowledge that he gives. Or you might say the greetings that we receive, the blessings we have, and the desire to clearly see Christ. Now, here's my good reason for doing this. This way, every year studies show that biblical literacy is declining across all categories. We know less and less about the Bible. And so while there's a time and place to study Ephesians 1 deeply and slowly, by the way, that is known as the Friday men's Bible study. Seriously, they're like halfway through Ephesians. Good job, guys. There's also a time and a place to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to expose as many people to as many of the great truths of the Bible as possible. So Ephesians 1, drinking from the fire hose, this might be a bad idea, but I have a good reason. I want you to know the grand meta-narrative of Scripture, the height, the breadth, the depth of all of it. We won't explain every detail this morning, but you will hear it, as you already have, once because Paul is telling us this, before you try to fix your biggest problem or someone else's, let the deep, deep love of Jesus roll over you like a mighty ocean in all its fullness. So with that, three points, and yes, some subpoints as well on Ephesians 1, we see first the greetings that the apostle gives us from Christ. The greetings that the apostle gives us from Christ in verses 1 and 2. Paul's intros are often short, but we shouldn't skip them. We should notice how Paul greets us and who he greets us from. Now, first, from whom does Paul greet us? Paul's an apostle. That means an envoy, a messenger, a sent one. But who sent Paul? Verse 1, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. They're brief words, but they're the words of God, his greetings, his regards, and how does Paul greet the people of Ephesus as well as anyone who 
reads these words. He greets them, us, as saints. He extends grace and peace to them. Saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints, not perfect people, not people who've done amazing things and been recognized as saints by one branch of the church. No, saints are those who are holy in Christ. That's what the New Testament means. Not holy on our own, because no one is. Holy in Christ. Holy because of Christ's work on our behalf, taking our sin upon himself, suffering for it, living the life that we couldn't live, and giving us the credit when we trust in him. This is who God's people are. They're saints in Christ Jesus, saints, holy, because of what Christ has done. It's who we are, and it's who we can be through faith in Christ. I assume at least one person here is not yet a believer in Christ Jesus. You may know about him. You may be inspired by him, but you may not realize how much you need him and how much he meets all of your needs. Today is not too late to realize that. Today may be the day of salvation for you. Now may be the favorable time to embrace, to embrace all the blessings that, Christ, that, uh, that Paul, Christ's messenger, greets us with. Paul extends to his people, he extends to, to us as well, grace and peace. He'll explain that more after verse 2. But so far, what's he saying to us? He says that they, that we, are holy in Christ through faith in Christ, in spite of our sin, and also that God's people have received grace that we don't deserve. Grace, God's unmerited favor, it's been called. And that we've also received a peace, peace that we couldn't find except for Christ. You may have heard of St. Augustine. By the way, the proper pronunciation is Augustine. I don't know who decided that, but that's, that's the case. St. Augustine, born in the fourth century, he lived a wild life before Christ found him. His spiritual autobiography, the Confessions, it says, You made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. If your life is a mess or messier than you want, then you may be tempted to change this or that, a hundred things. What if we followed Paul's advice? Here he is in prison. His people, his original audience, have a whole lot to learn. But first, Paul told them, remember your identity. Remember your status. You are holy in God's sight despite your sin, favored in God's sight, though you didn't earn it, peaceful in God's protection, which you didn't find. It found you. Oh, yes, you see, that's how it works. God's grace, his favor, his peace, they find you. They search us out. Psalm 23 terms, surely his goodness and mercy will follow, even pursue us all the days of our lives. That's the opening greeting that the Apostle Paul gives us. What do we see next? We see, secondly, the blessings that we have in Christ. Blessings that we have in Christ. Verses 3 through 14, which, by the way, is all one rambling long Greek sentence in the original language. What does Paul tell us next? We'll read verse 3 and only verse 3, not the whole sentence. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He praises or blesses God for these blessings. That's a model for us. You know, early in the week, I scribble short notes down, trying to get a handle on the passage. And 
This week, I wrote down, blessed be the blesser who blesses with every blessing. Now, not bad for a Monday, right? But I, I got confused. I was like, how can it say God gives us every blessing? Because that's not what it says, right? My summary oversimplified. It misled me. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Matthew Henry says that God wants us to realize, yes, there are temporal earthly blessings, but there's also spiritual blessings and spiritual blessings are better. And maybe you're not convinced yet. Keep listening. Listen to all the ways that he has blessed us. You could go through these verses, find 20 words that you want to explain and define and all that. Well, instead, I've got five categories for you divided around these five in him or in love statements that you see in verses 3 through 14. We are chosen, children, redeemed, rich, and secure. First, verse 4, Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, chosen from the Greek word ek lego, where we get the word elect, chosen in him. In him or in Christ, that pops up about 140 times in Paul's letters. I didn't count them. I googled that fact. Theologians call it union with Christ. In other words, through faith in Christ, which is enabled by God himself. We are in union with him in his life, his death, his resurrection. We receive all the benefits that Christ has earned. We didn't earn him, but he did. And yes, he did all this before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we might be holy and blameless before him. Pastor, I think this so-called doctrine of election encourages us to be complacent, to not strive for holiness. Okay, but Paul didn't think that. Paul says God's electing love, which sought you out before Genesis 1-1, in eternity past, it motivates you to live for him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, it tells us, the love of Christ compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In him were chosen. And then in verses four and five, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We are God's children. We're predestined or marked out beforehand for adoption. I won't belabor the process, that other P word, predestination. I won't do it now. Happy to do it later. Won't belabor the process because I want to focus on the result. For adoption as sons. You're sons of God, Paul is telling God's people. You have the greatest inheritance and blessings you can possibly have. And all of this is part of God's plan, his purpose, and it glorifies him to do so, to say so. In him we're chosen, in love we're children, we're adopted, we're sons. And then verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, to buy back, out of bondage. God sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. I didn't hear an amen, which means we must not have any Baptists in the house, but nonetheless... Paul equates this with redemption, this, this redemption. He equates it with the forgiveness of our trespasses, one of the many words for sin. Now, sin is a common word, but it may not have a common, a universal definition. When I say sin, I mean what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. 
Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3.23. So we need this. We need redemption. We need a costly forgiveness. It is costly. It would cost Jesus his life. Praise the Lord. Jesus is rich. He paid for our redemption through the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. That's the great and wise mystery that has been revealed in Christ. A mystery, a plan that began back in Genesis 3.15 when God promised that a snake crusher would defeat Satan, the tempter who dragged Adam and Eve into sin and misery. A plan that is fully revealed thousands of years later in what it says here is the fullness of time. In other words, at just the right time when Christ died and rose again for our sins. In him we're chosen. In love we're children. In him we're redeemed. And in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Why? Because we were predestined. If you don't like that word, take it up with the Holy Spirit, not with me. Predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is why we say that God is all wise and that he's sovereign. He knows what should happen and he makes it happen. That includes, of course, our adoption, our redemption, our inheritance, which is of particular importance to the Jews who had first hoped in Christ before they ever knew the name Jesus. They looked for a Savior who was to come. In him were chosen children, were redeemed, were rich, were recipients of an inheritance. And verse 13, in him, when you heard the gospel or the good news, and believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. You were sealed. You were secure because you received the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee or the Greek word is erebone. The ESV footnote, my Bible, says that means down payment. Think about that. The Holy Spirit, as great as he is, he is merely the down payment. What do down payments do? Down payments guarantee that the rest of the money is going to come. But down payments aren't everything, right? If you sell your house next week and the buyer only gives you the down payment and nothing else, how will you feel? But God cannot lie. So he will keep his promise, his end of the bargain. So if the down payment is this good, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, then how much better will the full inheritance be? Those are the benefits that we have in Christ. We're chosen, we're children, we're redeemed, we're rich. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us and it is secure. It's guaranteed. That erase every problem you have. Probably not. In a few minutes, when we come to the Lord's table, what am I going to say? Those of you who are regulars, you know. I'm going to say this meal is not for perfect people. It's for penitent or repentant sinners who know that they need the blood of Christ to cover over their sins. These blessings don't erase all the problems right away, sure. They don't erase all the continuing struggles with indwelling sin, true, but the problems don't erase the blessings either, do they? I don't think so. 
Tomorrow you will wake up and maybe it'll take five minutes. Maybe it'll take less than that. Maybe it'll take slightly more, but at some point you will struggle with anger or lust or jealousy or selfishness or idolatry or something else. But if you're in Christ, you will still be a chosen child of God, redeemed by his blood, rich because of your secure inheritance that has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those are the benefits that you have in Christ Jesus and no one's taking them away if you're in Christ Jesus. But Paul has still more to tell us about his desire to clearly see the deep, deep love of Christ. That's our third point this morning. <clears throat> the desire to clearly see the deep, deep love of Christ. Verses 15 to, uh, I put 32 in my notes. It's 23, flip that around there. Verse 15 to verse 23, desire to see Christ more clearly. John the Baptist said he must become greater, talking about his cousin, Jesus Christ. He must become greater. I must become less. See, we need to know how, how big God is, how deep his love is, which is what Paul mentions now. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's the end of the verse, not the end of the sentence. Paul's ceaseless prayers, that should humble us, set an example for us. I, I wish I could practice the presence of God, pray continually, unceasingly, like Brother Lawrence, a, a monk, once did. But there's another model for us here. What does Paul pray for? What does Paul desire for these relatively new believers in Christ, his original audience, as well as all of us who read this? Verse 17, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, we'll talk about the rest of that in a minute, that you may know, what is he, what is he saying? He's essentially saying he wants them to know God more deeply and see him more clearly. He wants God to give them wisdom, revelation, understanding. He's saying, I want you to know the stuff that some of you already know, but I want you to know it with more clarity, more certainty, more confidence. Confidence and certainty, always bad. Some people would say so, but if your answer to that is yes, let me just ask you, are you certain about that? Confidence and certainty, are they always bad? 400 years ago, some British pastors had to say what they believed as a civil war, a religious war was raging around them. And they said, this is chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession, paraphrased, that those who truly believe in Jesus may be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. That is possible. They can have an infallible assurance of faith founded upon their gut feeling. No, not quite. Founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And that even though this assurance of salvation may be shaken, may be diminished, it can also be restored and more. Even though all that's true, this is our duty to make our calling and election sure, to borrow some words from 2 Peter. See, aren't they saying, aren't they saying that we should strive for 
The same thing that Paul prays for. Isn't that what they're saying? That we should want to have a, the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we can know at the very least these five things, our hope, our inheritance, and the might, the height, and the headship of Christ. Isn't that what we see here? First, Paul wants every believer who reads this letter to know, verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. And what is that hope? We've already talked about it. And that flows into his second desire for us that we would also know our inheritance in verse 18. Our inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? By the way, if you're losing track, this is sub-point two of main point number three. I promise not every sermon is this detailed. We have a hope. And it's based on this amazing inheritance a spiritual blessing that we will one day taste in heaven. And why is that hope secure? Well, number one, it's because of what we talked about. We have a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has sealed us. He's our guarantee. He's our down payment of God's promise. And because of the third thing Paul wants us to know and see, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ. And he'll go on to say more, but for now, Paul's saying we're secure because, among other things, our Heavenly Father can beat up anyone who wants to harm us. Oh, is it crass and, and simple to say it that way? It might be. But my friends, the church will always have enemies. God's people will always have enemies. We always have. We always will. And I ask you this morning, if God says he loves you, but he can't keep you safe, and how much would you value that love? But that's not the case, is it? No, Paul doesn't say that. In years before Paul wrote this, David wrote this, Psalm 62. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. If he loved us, but he couldn't keep us safe, if he really had good intentions, but he couldn't keep us safe. How much would that mean to us? But no, David extolled both his power and his steadfast love, a love that will not let us go. That's what comforted David. Paul wants us to be comforted too by our hope, our inheritance, and by Christ's might, and by, fourthly, Christ's height, his height. Look with me at verses 20 through 22. He's talking about his power. His great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christ isn't just stronger than everyone. He's, up, he's above everyone. And those two ideas reinforce one another, don't they? Paul's saying to us, don't you realize that Christ, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who rules and reigns over everyone. And that leads to the last thing that Paul wants us to know. Not only Christ's, Christ's might, not only his height, his exalted status, but also Christ's headship. Christ's headship. Verse 22 says he is the head of the body. Now his main point here doesn't seem to be 
That Christ is the head, the ruler, the one who tells us what, what to do. Now that's, that's true. He, he does tell us what to do. He's our Lord. He can command us to do things. Yes, that's true. I'm just saying it's not exactly what he says here. He says, God gave him his head over all things to the church. In other words, the church's head is everyone else's head too. If the church is afraid that society is turned against her, endangered her very existence, she should remember that her head is the head of all mankind, that Jesus looks at every square inch of the earth and he proclaims mine. That should be a comfort to his body, the fullest expression of his love and his care, his body, his people. Again, these truths, they don't erase the troubles that God's people experience in this life. You will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Troubles, problems, they still abound, but so do all the blessings that we've talked about for saints who are holy in Christ, favored in Christ, and have found peace in Christ. For chosen children, redeemed, enriched, safe and secure because of the Spirit. And though we know all this, Paul prayed, and we should pray, that our eyes might be enlightened. Paul's prayer for us, it should also be our prayer for ourselves, for everyone, for new Christians, for old Christians, for non-Christians, for not yet Christians. We should pray that we might clearly see the deep, deep love of Christ. Because what do we see here? What have these last verses shown us? That we have a hope because an inheritance awaits us. That Christ, he has the might, the height, and the headship, the authority to secure all of these blessings for us who believe. Now, who did I say? Who has this hope? Is it everyone? Or is it for those who are in Christ? Another dead theologian once said this, as long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. If he's outside of us, these things are useless. They're of no value to us. We've been saying the first thing Christians need to do to remember before we try to change everything, all the peripheral details of life. We need to remember the blessings that we have in Christ to drink deeply of God's love. But there may be one thing even before that. We need to make sure that we are in Christ, dwelling in Christ, abiding in Christ, communing or even communicating with him daily. And if we aren't, there's never been a better time to start than now. I said this drink from the fire hose sermon, it may have been a bad idea, but I had a good reason. Failing to come to Christ, well, that's definitely a bad idea. I can't think of any reason you'd want to do that. But I can think of countless reasons that you should come to him. I'll name just a few so that you can know your hope, your inheritance, your rich inheritance, and the great power that secures those blessings. So come, come to him that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power?
towards us who believe. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Father, if we have, if we've been Christians forever, seemingly, from as long as we can remember, would you help us see afresh with more clarity, with more depth, with more joy, the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Father, if we've never seen it before, Father, would you let today be the day of salvation? Would you let the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, be enriched? Would you help us to see for the first time how deep the Father's love is for us? How vast beyond all measure. Oh, Father, be with us. Help us to taste and see that you are good. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen.